Back when I was in college, I would hear this question posed often. And to this day, every so often, people will ask it of me still. Why do you make so much of Jesus? Why can't he just be a very remarkable man? Can't we simply revere Jesus as an unusually brilliant moral teacher? Can't we regard Jesus as simply a charismatic social revolutionary? Can't we look upon Christ as just a deeply God-conscious soul from whom we can learn? Can we see him as the sexiest man who ever lived? Maybe not. Why must you Christians insist on making so much of him is what people sometimes wonder. Why insist with the writer of the Colossians that Jesus is the Son, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that in him all things were created, and in him all things hold together so that in everything, in everything, Jesus might have the supremacy. In short, why must we view Jesus as the one and only Son of God? Have you thought about that question? Do you have an answer to that question if people ask it of you? It seems like a fair inquiry to me. When I step back from my day-to-day practice of the Christian faith and I contemplate that uh, earnest question, it really seems like a fair question to me too. After all, no other world religion is so audacious about its founder as Christians are. Muslims don't picture Muhammad claiming to be Allah. Jews don't claim that Moses was Yahweh come to the earth in the flesh. Buddhists don't even have a mental framework in which to conceive of a sovereign God who would become a human being. Hindus believe in many different incarnations. They believe in the divine in all and through all. So why are Christians so hung up about the distinctive divinity of Jesus the way they are? Why is that? Dr. Yaroslav Pelagin of Yale University spent decades trying to figure out whether this was in fact simply a later accretion of conviction upon a very different kind of original faith. He was trying to answer the question that many uh, raise, or the objection or contention many raise, that, that actually this belief in Jesus as the Son of God was something that came along much, much later. It wasn't what Jesus had in mind at all. It was simply an add-on that, that Christians invented much, much later. And Dr. Pelican studied the original and the earliest documents of the Christian church and of the surrounding society he could find. And he will tell you that this hang-up about Jesus as the Son of God, if indeed that is what it is, goes all the way back, all the way back to the very start of the Christian movement. Pelican points out that the very earliest sermon we can find, that the earliest account of a Christian martyr someone who died for their their conviction about the Christ. The oldest non-Christian report 
that we have in the historical record about the church. The oldest, most ancient liturgical prayer all refer to Jesus of Nazareth as Lord and God. All contend that he was not merely a man, but indeed the Lord and God. Pelican found clear evidence that was dated back to within a decade or so of Christ's crucifixion of widespread Christian belief that Jesus was in fact God, the creator of the universe, come in the flesh. Now, do you know why this is so amazing? Do you know why it is actually so scandalous and remarkable that this should have been the belief of the early church? It's because the very first proponents of this point of view were Jews. That they were monotheists. That they were people ruggedly, rigorously committed to the notion that there was God, one God alone. And as members of the most tenaciously monotheistic Nation on earth, they saw God as a radically holy and transcendent being above and beyond any fleshly conception of him. In the words of the psalmist from one of our other lectionary readings for today, God was their eternal refuge and their strength. He was a being so vast and so almighty that he would continue on. Though the earth gave way and though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, this one eternal God was above it all. Above everything we could touch or see or imagine in the flesh. And the thought that this God, this Almighty One, would would calve off some part of Himself and come to earth in human form would be as preposterous to the Jews as if I suggested that your arm might suddenly pop off of your body, crawl down the hall, and go get you a coffee and a donut this morning, though you might be ready for it too. That's how preposterous the notion would be. That the one eternal almighty God should somehow come in the flesh to human beings. So how did these Jews and some equally skeptical Greeks come to believe that Jesus of Nazareth was not simply a very wise teacher or a very impressive leader or a particularly excellent prophet, but this altogether different, scandalously different phenomenon, the Lord Almighty with us, as Psalm 46, 11 says, God in human flesh. How did they come to this belief? Well, the answer is that three pieces of a puzzle came together for them. Three significant data streams flowed together for them and formed a singular, convincing, compelling picture that led to their belief. The first piece of the puzzle is the connections people saw between this carpenter from Nazareth, this Rabbi from Galilee, Jesus, and the prophecies of the coming Christ, the coming Messiah. The writers of the Old Testament, as you know, said a great deal about 
the coming Messiah, about what God was planning to do through the Messiah he would send and what the characteristics of that Messiah would be. If you're reading along in the lectionary menu with us during this season, then you've already come across the prophecy in Jeremiah 23 in which we're told of God's plan to send a shepherd king who would arise like a righteous branch out of the trunk of King David's family tree, as Jesus of Nazareth, we know, did. If you go home and read Isaiah chapter 53 today, if you will take the time to read your way through Psalm 22 today and ask yourself, do any of these details uh, or, or the person that is being described there or the experiences that are being um, unraveled there, do they sound familiar in any way to me? And then remember that these words that are written in just these two texts, Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born or before crucifixion was even conceived by the Romans. In his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, famed apologist Josh McDowell cites the work of mathematician Peter Stoner. Stoner calculated the odds of one person fulfilling just eight of the ancient biblical prophecies concerning the coming Christ. Stoner says, that the odds of that happening really (laughs) defy imagination and benefit from a physical picture. Imagine covering the state of Texas, says Stoner, with a layer of silver dollars, the entire state of Texas, with a layer of silver dollars two feet deep. Now, mark one of the dollars, any one of them across the entire state, at whatever level of that, of that two-foot pile, mark just one of them and stir it into the whole mass of dollars where nobody can see you doing it. Then blindfold somebody and have them head out in whatever direction they choose for as long as they may choose from the center of the state and tell them that they're allowed to only pick up one dollar. And when they pick up that dollar, they must say with confidence, this is the one, this is the marked coin. What is the probability that the person will pick up the correct coin? The answer, says Stoner, is 10 to the 17th power. 10 to the 17th power. That is the same probability of one person fulfilling all eight of the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah. Now, here's the clinker. The details of Jesus' life fulfilled more than 300 such prophecies. In more than 300 ways, his story corresponded with promises made hundreds of years before about the character and journey and work of the Messiah. Many people in Jesus' time 
saw some of those connections and it began to form a picture for them. Then there's the second puzzle piece that began to come into focus. Jesus himself claimed to be the one of whom the prophets had spoken. At the start of his ministry, Jesus stood before the crowd in his hometown of Nazareth, and he stood up and he read the prophecy from Isaiah 61, another one of the messianic prophecies describing the one who was to come. And then he said, as he, uh, un, as he let the scroll fold up again and laid it down, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people wanted to stone him for it. When Jesus later asked his disciples who they thought he was, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, meaning the Messiah, the anointed one. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus could have so easily said as a loyal Jewish rabbi, whoa there, that's blasphemy, Peter. You're taking this too far. There's one God in heaven. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a prophet. I'm just a teacher. I'm just an instructor, a pointer to the one who is the all in all. But Jesus said instead, only God could have shown you this. And on the rock of this truth and your understanding of it, I will build this church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Most of the time, Jesus was far more low-key in the way he communicated who he was. After healing somebody or, or sharing the truth of his identity with his disciples, Jesus would often caution, don't tell anyone about this yet. Or he'd use a a, a coy reference to himself. He would repeatedly call himself the Son of Man. He'd refer to himself as the son of man. It would require you to know the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 about the coming Lord of the earth to know that the son of man was a description of just that one. And he was claiming it for himself. He would tell people more often, don't tell anyone about this yet. Many people have construed from that that Jesus was was denying the fact of his divinity. He was trying to say, don't misunderstand me as some kind of a God-man. I'm not. But there is a much more plausible explanation for why Jesus was very careful not to have people widely know who he was at the moment. One reason for that messianic secret keeping was that to go about in public more widely with that kind of statement made would have been swiftly fatal for him. To shout out, I am God, in a culture whose number one religious conviction is that there is only one God and he is invisible, was a blasphemous crime sure to bring on the execution of Jesus long before he'd sown his message out as widely as he planned to. Secondly, to reveal his supreme nature even more blatantly, would have resulted in a flood of followers who were motivated by desire to get to the next breadbasket or to the next miraculous healing or to get the celebrity touch instead of a motivation to come closer to the kingdom of God that Jesus really wants to lead us to. Thirdly and most importantly, 
Jesus didn't need to tell people who he was that blatantly. He no more needed to, to bluntly tell us that than Jack Welch needed to walk around General Electric proclaiming, I am CEO, attention everybody, I'm CEO. There are some things that are simply obvious to those who will pay attention. For those who had the ears to hear and the eyes to see, everything about the person and work of Jesus declared that he was the ultimate undercover boss. He really was, if you just had eyes to see. To numerous people, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. To the repentant thief on the cross that we meet in another one of our lectionary texts for today, Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. To his disciples, Jesus said, I came to give my life as a ransom for many. As, as the price of release for the world. Think about what Jesus is saying here. Who is it that has the power and authority to forgive sins and to guarantee people a place in paradise? Who is it in himself who is so valuable that his one life could serve as a ransom weighty enough to win the freedom of all people. Who is it that has that kind of identity and capacity? We know the answer to that question. We know that answer. It is God alone. And at, and at one time or another, if you're a student of the New Testament, you will realize that Jesus claimed all of the well-known attributes of God for himself. Jesus claimed to be omnipresent. He said, whenever even two or three of you are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst, as we believe he's here with us even now. Jesus claimed to be preexistent and eternal. Oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world began, Jesus prayed on the night of his betrayal. Jesus claimed to be the judge of the world. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, he said, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from the other into everlasting punishment and into eternal life. Jesus claimed to be sinless. Which of you can convict me of sin? He asks the holiest people of his day. Jesus claimed to be the Lord of time. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, he said of himself. Jesus claimed to be the master of life and death. No one takes my life from me, said Jesus before his crucifixion to Pilate. But I lay it down myself. And if I lay it down, I tell you, I have the power to take it up again, as we know he did. Jesus claimed to be the source of absolute truth. Holy men and prophets might dare to say, thus saith the Lord. Only Jesus had the audacity to say, you have heard it said in the scriptures. But I tell you, 
Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, this is how you should understand the meaning of those scriptures. He claimed to be the source of that truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus claimed the perpetual authority of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, Jesus said, my words will never pass away. In a day before the internet, in a day before massive recorded written histories, Jesus could dare to make a claim like that. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And yet, 2,000 years later, we're still reading the words, aren't we? On every continent, in every language, going out to every tribe, the fulfillment of his promise. Are you going to tell me, are you going to believe for yourself As some contend, that Jesus never meant anyone to think that he was God. That it was simply the accretion of the deluded faith of latecomers to the story who saw Jesus as God. Some years back, a dear college friend of mine became convinced that he was God. Jesus Christ, in fact. Mike had been the president of the student government before me. He was a remarkably capable guy, a brilliant athlete as well as a a statesman and a scholar. But, But he became convinced as he got towards the end of his college years that he was, in fact, Jesus Christ. He was urged on by the voices of angels, he told me later. And the angels told Mike that he should hurl himself off of a highway overpass. And he, he did so. And he broke most of the bones in his body. Uh, you would have to conclude that anybody who said the sort of things that, that Mike said uh, was, was probably ill. Um, you'd have to conclude that, that, that anybody that said the sort of things that Jesus said about himself was either ill, like my friend Mike, or else he was a raving megalomaniac like Hitler or Stalin or, or some other wildly narcissistic person. Oxbridge scholar C.S. Lewis points out how often this part of the puzzle gets overlooked when it comes to assessing Jesus in the popular press and even in common conversation. People will often say about him, writes Lewis, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But that, says Lewis, is the one thing we must not say for a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice, writes Lewis. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being merely a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He was very careful not to. And this reality suggests a third piece of the puzzle about him, which, which I will tell you, as a college student myself, completed the picture for me in a way that consolidated my faith and has, has left me with a profound conviction about these things ever since. Christ's character lined up with his claims. Christ's entire deportment lined up with everything he said about himself and everything the prophecies said about the Son of God. In Jesus of Nazareth, uh, unlike any of the other people who have been out there claiming to be God in the flesh, we see an absolutely stunning self-confidence coupled with an a simply stupefying servanthood. In Jesus of Nazareth, we see a being who does not only not run from suffering when he absolutely could, but who actively chooses the cross for the sake of redeeming those whom he loves. In Jesus of Nazareth, we see a life that does not render evil for evil, but overcomes evil. With good. In Jesus, we see one who speaks the truth, believes the impossible, honors all persons at every level of the society. If this is not the character of God, I submit to you, if this is not the character of the Son of God, then this I definitely know. It is not the character of a mere man. For no man is like this. In his wonderful book, The Jesus I Never Knew, author Philip Yancey recounts the story of George Buttrick, who was for many years the Harvard University chaplain. And on many occasions, hundreds of them in fact, students came to Buttrick's study telling him, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in God. And Buttrick's response was to say, well then, why don't you sit down and just tell me again what kind of God you don't believe in? What kind of God do you not believe in? I probably don't believe in that God either, says Buttrick. And he then go on to talk to the students about Jesus. About Jesus, the, the true corrective to all of our false notions about God. Philip Yancey confesses, I must admit that Jesus has revised in flesh many of my harsh and unpalatable notions about God. Why am I a Christian? Asks Yancey. I sometimes ask myself. And to be perfectly honest, the reasons reduce to just two. One, the lack of good alternatives. And two, Jesus. 
brilliant, untamed, tender, creative, slippery, irreducible, paradoxically humble. Jesus stands up to scrutiny, writes Yancey. He is who I want my God to be. What about you? What about you? Some of you listening to me today have been sitting on the fence about Christ. And I want to challenge you to make a decision about him. I want to encourage you today to take a step of faith in the direction of secularism and atheism or pantheism or some other ism in your life or take a step in the other direction towards discipleship, towards giving the whole of your life to the one who holds, the scriptures say, all of life in his hands. I want to challenge you to make that decision for yourself. C.S. Lewis said that there are three things you can do to someone who claims to be God as Jesus did. Some have called this the great trilemma, the great trilemma. You can look down from your seat and say you're a certifiable lunatic. You need to have your arms wrapped up in a straitjacket. That's an option you can take with Jesus. Or two, you can look down from your seat of superiority and you can say you're a blasphemous liar. You should not say such things about yourself. You're a danger to the public order. You need to have your arms stretched out on a cross. Or there's a third option, says Lewis. It's the one taken by those who looked closely at the prophecies of the Messiah and saw how they came together in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. It is the option chosen by those who study the claims of Jesus and find them stunningly consistent with the character of this man. Such people get down from their seats. They fall on their knees And they say, you are the Lord and my God. These are the people who Christ still takes in his strong arms. And I pray that if not yesterday, starting today, you are one of them. Please pray with me. Lord God of all life, Lord God of all life, take us to yourself, we pray. Fill us with your life today. Use us in every way so that in everything you might have the supremacy which belongs to you alone. Amen.